Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Hey, good morning. This is Dr. Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today on Sound Insight. Here we are in the middle of August, and it is hot. Yes, it is. Well, not as hot as the last couple of days, but still extremely hot. Lots going on out there. Pray for people who are trapped in the heat, work in the heat, or have been impacted by fires, especially those on Maui. Please, please, please. Well, today in the program, I'm going to cover the last part of my series, Marriage the Gift of God. And this is covering the idea of not taking yourself too seriously. That's the gift of hilarity. We'll learn about that today on the program. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Tonight is our fourth week of Marriage, a Gift from God. And the theme is, I do not take myself too seriously. Remember, the goal is this. How you see shapes how you relate your attitudes, which will then will shape how you behave. So we've learned some practical things on the way, and these practical things hopefully are going to be related to a new attitude that flows from a new awareness. Well, all of this leads to the fourth sentence, I do not take myself too seriously. One of the things Carrie and I believe it's important for our kids to be exposed to is the world in which we're living right now is a world in which abortion is legal. One of the ways we do that is by taking them to the March for Life. And so we went to the March for Life, the mass that precedes the actual march from St. Michael's Church in Olympia over to the Capitol building. And when we take up a row, we take up the whole row. And so we got there in time to get one of the back rows, and our kids were kind of splayed out, and Kerry kind of had us all crunched together to make room because there were some older folks who were there who didn't have seats. So we had a lot of kids on laps and all that. And this gentleman, this older gentleman, sat down next to me, and he's kind of looking at all of this. And he said to me, how many kids do you have? And I said, eight. And he said, it's a good start. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, don't take yourself too seriously, buddy. You think you're all that with your eight kids lined up here. And this guy just plops himself down and says, that's a good start. And I said, how many kids did you have? And he went, boom, 10, <laughs> 10 kids. And I'm like, wait a couple years. You know, <laughs> you didn't hear that, Carrie. You didn't hear that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Come on. Um, but um, a good start. And I'm like, oh, wow, a source of wisdom. And I said, all right. Give me some insight. He said, the most important thing is faith. He said, you have to live your faith in front of your kids. And I'm like, got it. Let me take that one down. I wanted to capture everything that this guy had to say. He said, it's faith that will keep you together. And then he put forward a particular future about, you know, where all this could be headed. 
um, in terms of life and watching your kids grow up and some of the, the joys that would come when they fulfilled a God-given mission that he could be proud of and others who wandered from the church and the pain that caused. And then he spoke about the sadness of just a couple of months earlier, mentioned that he had a daughter that was about my age that they had just buried. And he just said that that wasn't something that he had ever thought would be part of being a father. And I just thought, wow, what a source of wisdom this man is. And it was really, honestly, a a moment of hilarity for me. Tom, don't take yourself too seriously. There are others who have walked a path that is far more profound and good and beautiful that you want to learn from. Hilarity. What is hilarity? Not taking yourself too seriously. And why is it so important and integral as part of the gift message? Do you know that hilaritas in Latin is a virtue? It's a virtue in the Summa Theologica. I know you all probably have it. So, but just as a review, uh, <laughs> hilaritas is the view, it's in fact the virtue of not taking yourself too seriously. It, in fact, is connected, believe it or not, with the mind. Hilaritas mentis. And it gives rise to a kind of cheerfulness. Did you hear that? There's a cheerfulness associated with hilarity. You are hilarious, right? You hear the root. You have the root. And, and, and the idea is this, is that when you look at the scriptures, Jesus talks about someone who is hilarious. The person who displays hilaritas mentis is the one who is fasting. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, the one who's fasting shouldn't what? Look glum. Is anybody noticing me yet? <sighs> Face isn't washed and really feeling, how's it going today? Oh, pretty good, I'm fasting. You know? <laughs> How about you, right? And, and if you've ever fasted or really engaged Seriously, in fasting, this is one of the most difficult things to do. Be cheerful. And yet Jesus associates the idea of training and restraining the body for the sake of extending oneself spiritually. Did you hear that? Living on what is sufficient rather than what satisfies fasting for the sake of disposing oneself for an encounter with God fasting. That should be associated with cheerfulness. But in a certain sense, that cheerfulness isn't going to be how you feel. But it's going to be connected with your mind, how you see. And so hilaritas, hilarity, is going to be this attitude of not taking myself too seriously, not because I look around and everything is hunky-dory and I'm smiling, or not because I'm living in illusion about how hard things are right now, but there's somehow the ability I have to see my situation in the light of the gift message. Did you hear what I just said? Hilaritas is going to connect the life that we're actually asked to live as stewards who pour ourselves out in light of the gift message. Watch what happens if you sense your stewardship as a spouse and as a parent. It's the second sentence. And you strive to live that stewardship by pouring yourself out, giving of yourself 
constantly, time over time, day after day. How are you gonna feel at the end of pouring yourself out? Oh, happy me. <laughs> Is hilaritas the particular attitude that in fact we come to? The answer is, not exactly. Think about it. If you know that you're a steward and you have this sense of pouring yourself out, do you ever feel that temptation of saying, is anybody noticing all that I'm doing around here? Does anybody appreciate all that I'm giving? And what that can lead to is, in fact, resentment. Resentment anger, outbursts, outbursts at those gifts that I've been serving. Unappreciative gifts. And it's very real. And I want you to think about the, the sense that you have of feeling frustrated or feeling a sense of your own limits when you're not seeing the growth that you hoped for the response that you expected, the sense of advancement in you and your spouse and your kids and your family that you thought was needed. And you know what actually causes more frustration and a sense of failure? The internet, blogs. Women don't read blogs of other women who write about their families. You know why? They're only telling you about the good stuff. Happy pictures, you didn't know that was like one out of like 900 pictures that they were able to put up there. But there is a way in which women only want to share about how happy things are. So I know Carrie spent too much time on blogs if I come home and she's feeling down about our lives. <laughs> <laughs> she's read about the woman who can juggle 14 kids on one foot. <laughs> and I'm like, Carrie, you're not getting the whole picture. So it's easy to fall into this sense of the gap that's there between the life we have and the life we want. Where's the hilaritas? What I want to say to you is hilaritas is going to flow from the whole gift message. You, you see what I said? If you know you're a steward and you know you're supposed to pour out and you're pouring out, what might you be missing? You might be missing the source of the stewardship and of the pouring out, and that is that all is gift. Because if you're this cup and this, you only have so much to give and you pour out, you let flow all that you have to give, how are you going to be at the end of your day? Empty. And it's the emptiness that gives rise to the resentment, the bitterness, the anger, and the outbursts. I got nothing left. But you're not called to flow. You're called to overflow. Overflow is... I'm a cup that is being filled and filled so much that it's flowing over. Is this making sense? If you think you have the ability to do it on your own and you're striving to say, I'm going to figure this out, I'm going to crack this nut, or I'm going to crack this child, <laughs> right? I'm going to figure this thing out. You're going to end up empty because you're relying on your own strength but you're not supposed to. God is the author of marriage. God has made you a gift and he wants to pour into you so that the overflow flows from you. Not that it's not pouring out. Yes, it is pouring out. 
But it's different because you're not just relying on your own strength. Hilaritas. Hilaritas needs the gift message. It needs us knowing that I'm not asked to give what I have not, first of all, received. And so I say to you, yesterday was Valentine's Day. Give God the gift of what? Letting God pour into you. Let him pour into you. Because if you don't let him pour into you, you're not going to have a lot left. Pretty quickly, you're going to be spent. And when you find yourself reaching the breaking point, the cracking point, you need to be able to step back and access that source of the one who is the gift. What did Jesus, what would you need to feed 5,000? A lot. What does Jesus need? Just a little. A few loaves, look what he can do. Do you ever ask him to multiply loaves in your family? Ask him, God, I got a little. But when I bring you that little, I have more than enough. I got stuff left over. You see, we have to believe that. If we don't believe it, we're not going to live it. And we're not going to believe it or live it until we've experienced it. Which brings me to, how do we grow in hilaritas? How do we actually grow in hilarity? I don't have to try to make this up. I can tell you there's a need for it, but unless I'm going to tell you how to actually get at it, I'm not going to be serving you as well as I could. So, there is a great saint, the saint of joy. In fact, that's how he was known. He was known as a saint marked essentially by joy, St. Philip Neri. He was such a clown, he would go dancing around the street and sing and dance, and people would follow him right into the church and start preaching. Very effective. I'm serious. The Apostle of Rome. They'd, hey, what's going on? What, hey, where's everybody going? Right in the church, and then, come on, everybody. Now, go to confession. Ha-ha. <laughs> you know? uh, and he proposes... This beautiful but simple formula. Do you want to grow in the spiritual life? You need three virtues, essentially. And the three virtues are humilitas, honestas, and hilaritas. Say that. Humilitas, honestas, and hilaritas. And they're intimately connected. Intimately connected. Well, first of all, what is humilitas? Well, you all hear it right in the word. Humility. But boy, do we get humility wrongly. We don't understand it correctly. Humilitas, humility, is, look at the definition, praiseworthy self-abnegation. Well, there's a good word, huh? Everybody in the count of three, abnegate themselves. One, two, three. Don't worry, it wasn't dirty, okay? (laughs) Lower yourself. Lower yourself. However, there's a difference between what we think about humility and the virtue of humility. We think of the person who's humble as the person who thinks little of themselves. No, no, I'm not good. In fact, I'm awful. I'm not, they can't take the compliment maybe, or in fact, they'll express a kind of self-loathing or self-hatred. Now you hear that and you think, well, they don't really believe that. John Paul II said this. John Paul II said that, you know, well, I shouldn't say he said this. This is kind of a paraphrase. Uh, that self-hatred shouldn't be a surprise because self-hatred is the fruit of doing hateful things. Sin. Sin is hateful. And when you do something hateful, it's going to have this effect on you where you will become hateful to yourself. 
because you've done the hateful thing. So when you hear your kids say, I hate myself, they may in fact be bringing out into the open a kind of boomerang effect that's happened upon them because they've done something that they know is wrong. They don't call it hateful, but that's what it gives rise to in us. That's not humility. Humility isn't thinking little of yourself. It's thinking little about yourself. Do you catch the difference? You're too busy thinking about someone else to be focused on yourself. The humble person isn't drawing attention to him or herself. The humble person isn't even thinking about myself. If I get noticed or not noticed, I didn't notice. Does this make sense? Let me dig into it a little more. Humility, there's a difference between putting oneself down and lowering oneself before. There's a difference between putting oneself down. We all know that what I'm talking about there, saying horrible things about yourself, just putting yourself down. That is not humility, and the church does not promote that at all. The church does promote lowering oneself before. Because that's based on truth. If I lower myself before you, if I humble myself, I'm lowering myself before you. It's because I see something in you that is worth reverencing. Did you hear that? I see someone in front of me that is, in fact, a child of God, this irreplaceable one. But you know where we're actually going to learn how to lower ourselves before each other is in the relationship that truly displays the opportunity we have to exercise praiseworthy self-abnegation. That is, in our relationship with God. See, in your relationship with God, you have every good reason to lower yourself before God, to bow down and worship. Humility is an act of truth. It's acknowledging the truth about who God is, my creator, who's perfect and faithful and loving towards me. And as I lower myself in truth, it's an acknowledgement that I am his creation and I am not always faithful and I don't always honor or love him faithfully in return. That's where humility comes from. That's what humility is. Now, okay, anybody want to grow in humility? Yeah, not a lot of hands going up yet. (laughs) I told you I'd help you get to hilarity, okay? And humility is the first doorway that will lead to hilaritas. Hilaritas is this cheerfulness. Really, it's a cheerfulness, but it's only going to be yours if you're willing to experience the humilitas. Okay, what is the path to humility? We would love to think that I become humble by before, by getting down on my knees before I go to bed and saying, dear Lord, please make me humble. And at night, the angel of humility will come by and pour out humility on me. And I'll wake up in the morning and I'll say, I'm more humble. Not how it happens. Not how it happens. I will tell you from personal experience, confirmed by our spiritual tradition, that God will, in fact, answer that prayer for humility. And he will often do it 
in one of two ways. You pray every day to grow in humility. I'm serious. Pray every day to grow in humility and you'll experience one of two things. Ordinarily, the first thing you'll experience is the opportunity to humble yourself. And if you refuse it, he may give you another opportunity to humble yourself. And if you refuse it, he may just choose to answer your prayer by humiliating you. So I always like to say, if I'm going to pray for humility, God, give me the grace to choose to humble myself because I darn it want to avoid being humiliated. It happens all the time. All the time. It shows up in the simplest things. Today, I had an opportunity. <laughs> I, was walk, I, I was picking up my daughter, and there I saw a woman that after having a conversation with my wife, Carrie, I realized, ooh, we need to humble ourselves in front of her. Don't have time. Come on, that was funny. Stay with me. Because <laughs> you'd never do that. And I'm thinking, I have little time, but let me go over. I just gradually, I just pulled, I, didn't, I just kind of interrupted her conversation. I said, you know, I just need to say that I'm really sorry about what happened last week. I know that there was a lack of communication that happened and that left you in the lurch. And I, I'm really sorry that happened. It's in front of this other woman that I know, and it's in front of her daughter. And here I am, humbling myself. Did I like to do it? No. Was it right to do it? Absolutely. Am I going to be willing to choose to embrace the opportunities God gives me to humble myself when they come? The answer is, I hope. But there's no guarantee. <laughs> so I pray to God often, give me the wisdom to recognize what you're asking and the courage to do it. Does this make sense? So humility, the willingness to be able to lower myself before someone in a situation where, you know what? I wasn't at my best. We weren't at our best. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if any of you have situations like that crop up in your daily life in the next hour, but they will crop up. And I say to you, they will become clear. If you want to grow in hilarity, you have to pray for humility. Humility. St. Thomas Aquinas says, you cannot will the end without willing the means. You cannot say you can accomplish the goal without choosing to say yes to the means to that goal. Think getting in shape. You want to will that end? I will get in shape. Guess what you're going to will? Eating right and exercising, right? Willing the means to the end. And so if we really and truly want to be humble, we have to be willing to choose the means God gives us to humble ourselves. Now, everybody happy they're here tonight? <laughs> okay. This actually leads to something quite beautiful. Anastas. It does. Now, Anastas doesn't mean, guess what? Honest. It, honestly, it doesn't. <laughs> hey, that was pretty funny, Latin humor. <laughs> Anastas is that which is willing or that which is deserving of being honored. The virtue of honestas is that virtue by which I live a life that is worthy of being lifted up before others and being honored because the life that I'm living, living is radiating that which is noteworthy, 
worthy of being honored, that which is beautiful. The theological word is that which is glorious. There's a key here. There's an absolute key here. Anastas. Humility, lowering myself, is the path to being lifted up. Oh, God humbles the exalted, but exalts the humbled. You strive to live this message on your own. You try to lift yourself up and you will fail. If you are willing to lower yourself before God and acknowledge, I need you to be for me the source of my ability to to live this message, be a gift to me. I tell you, God will lift you up. Honestly, he will. He will lift you up in a way that will radiate from you, not just you, but he himself will be glorified in your life. His glory will shine through your life. It's really stunning, this path that St. Philip Neri proposes. That in marriage, you're going to have opportunities to outdo one another in showing honor. So says St. Paul. Look for those opportunities to lift up the ways that your spouse and your children are living in accord with their identity as gifts from God and living their mission as gifts to each other. Outdo one another. Look for those opportunities to reverence one another, to serve one another. That's the path to hilaritas. Now, let's break it open a little bit more because there are two other attitudes that will actually show up in terms of this hilaritas mentis, this cheerfulness of mind that you will experience. The first is generosity. St. Thomas Aquinas defines generosity as striving to give more than I received. I dare you to make that the standard of your relationship with your spouse. Or I propose to you, (laughs) if not dare. Okay, Okay, I don't dare, all right. Saw some of these looks, holy cow. Don't take yourself too seriously there, buddy. Come on now, I'm just just kidding. Uh, Strive to give more than you've received. Well, guess what? If you start applying that standard in your marriage and with your kids, it's a trap unless you trace it back to the gift message, which, guess what, says this. There is a relationship where you're never going to win when it comes to generosity. There's a relationship that is intended for you where you'll always lose the generosity that happens in the relationship. What relationship is that? With God. God will never be outdone in generosity. But I say to you, you will learn generosity in imitation of his generosity to you. Otherwise, it's self-generated. Did you hear that? It's either going to be God-generated or it's going to be self-generated. Let it be God-generated because then God will be glorified in the giving, in the pouring out, in the serving. Otherwise, you'll draw attention to yourself rather than to God. I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a second. But are you following me? Here's the thing. There's, there's, there's a trick here, and it's not really a trick. You won't be able to live it until you've experienced it. You won't be able to live 
the generosity of God in your marriage and in, among your children, in your family, until you've experienced God's generosity for yourself and he intends to give it to you. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. You just have to let him do it. Hmm. All right? Have you ever asked God? Have you ever said to God, please shock me with your generosity? Overwhelm me with your love. God, please, I beg you to break into my life, break into my marriage, break into my family, and do something that makes abundantly clear to me just how much you love us and how much you want to give to us. Please show us who you are to us as our loving Father. Shock us with your generosity. Have you ever prayed that way? I do encourage you. Please pray that way. And it's not just a prayer you just say once and say, I prayed it. (laughs) What is it? It is an action that flows from an attitude. You see, this action, praying like this, is going to flow from a certain way of relating to God, which, guess what? Flows from a certain way of seeing God. That's the great sadness of all of this that we might tend to relate to God as someone who's distant from our marriage rather than the author of our marriage. The one who somehow is watching and maybe keeping score and not the one who is the primary commitment that this marriage and family needs to rely on. He's more committed to us than we are to ourselves, to him or to each other. Ask him every day, please God, Be the God that you intend to be for our lives. Overwhelm us with how close you come to us, with the gifts you give to us, with the blessings you bring to us. Please, please, please keep doing that until you experience it, until you're convinced of it happening. And then give me a call because I want to hear the stories. And I know there will be stories. And so it's something that we try to, teach our kids. It's something that Carrie and I try to do in our own lives every day. Every day I pray that way. Every day I ask God to bless us that way. I don't want to leave one blessing behind that he intends for us. Take him at his word. Let him be that good and loving father to you. Now, when this happens, you know what this is going to give rise to? Gratitude. Okay, you're not really catching it, and I'm going to explain it to you. Gratitude is where you give thanks for something, right? What you're going to actually give thanks for is not just out of hilarity thanking God for your whole life, but thanking God for that stewardship. Not just thanking God for the gift, but thanking God for the responsibility, for the entrustment. And guess what? Thanking God for the opportunity to pour out. You didn't hear it. Thanking God for the opportunity to pour out. Here's the challenge I face almost every morning. When I wake up, I've shared with you, I go downstairs and I clean the house, right? This means getting up sometimes a lot earlier than I would choose. And the challenge I face each and every time is, as I'm cleaning up, do I do it with hilarity or do I do it with resentment? Resentment means, why didn't these kids pick up and why didn't Carrie pick up after these kids? Why didn't Carrie stop these kids from making this? You know what I mean. Uh, Or do I say, 
thank you, God. I thank you that I have a family that I get to get up and clean for. And it's the test that we have our kids take. It's the test Carrie and I ask ourselves. It's the trading places test. How many people in the world would trade places with you in an instant? Billions. Take your hardest moment, the hardest moment of your hardest day. Take that hardest moment. How many people would trade places with you right now in an instant? Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. And to remain hilarious, to remain hilarious is the great challenge. I got to tell you, what is the likelihood that my child is going to bump her knee against the table after she has done something wrong and I'm about to punish her? The answer is, the worse act she's done, the higher the likelihood she's going to hurt herself and therefore have to evoke sympathy from me, right? You've never experienced that in your houses? I swear it's there, right? But what's the key? The key is to be able to say, is that all you got? Oh, come on. We got to laugh. And I said to Carrie, I said, Carrie, you know why this is happening? I'm giving a talk tonight on hilaritas. This is why it's happening, right? So I then drove back to the office to finish typing up the outline. And what did I do? I left my notes at home. I'm like, oh, that's so funny, God. Come on. <laughs> Is that all you got? Come on, right? And, and there was a moment of panic because I had finished typing the whole outline and I realized I hadn't saved it. And I'm like... Oh, dear God, mercy, mercy. Don't, don't, God, no, no more hilarity. Save. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and so we have our outline tonight. You see, the great challenge of hilaritas is what? You're bulletproof when it comes to the trials that come your way. Why? Because truly, all will be gift, even your stewardship. And yes, even you're pouring yourself out. The giving of yourself Day after day, moment after moment, the giving of yourself. It won't be you giving yourself. It'll be the Lord overflowing the giving of himself. Yes, through the giving of yourself. That's the gift message and how it applies to marriage. Sometimes people ask me, is there only one? You know, uh, were you made for someone? And... Uh, uh, I have to say this. This is just a, again, just a simple practice for you. Uh, if you have children, pray for your kids' spouses. Pray for your kids' spouses. I mean, I have six daughters, two sons. I'm praying already for my daughter's convents that they're going <laughs> to. I got brochures on the table. Sister comes over for dinner. You think I'm kidding. You have no idea. So uh, I want my kids exposed to 
the full range of calls and missions for them. Um, I kind of joke about it, but it's true. I prayed for Carrie for about five years before I ever met her. No, no, sorry, four years. Um, I prayed for Carrie for four years before I ever met her. Once I sensed that I had a call to be married, I really did believe that God had someone for me. And it, how would I pray specifically? Dear Lord Jesus, I ask you to watch over my future spouse. If there is one, I sense there is, God, watch over her. Keep her safe. Bless her. Protect her, especially from those evil boys. (laughs) And Lord, this is how I prayed specifically. Prepare her for me and prepare me for her. And I would actually, I'll tell you why this was such a great help for me specifically. And it may also be a help as a parent. I don't know yet. You're going to have to help me. Those of you that have kids that are older and are watching them navigate their way towards marriage. And that is that dating became very simplified. It was so simple for me, the concept of dating, because once I would date someone, I'd go out on a date, I was always trying to sense, are you the one? Why are you laughing? I wouldn't say that. (laughs) Don't say it, right? Sense it. I just sensed it. Are you the one, listen now, who lives in my heart? Are you the one that God has planted in my heart? Because there's this beautiful tradition in the Catholic Church that says, your heart's deepest desire is in you, but it's not from you. Your heart's deepest desire, that which will make you truly happy and fulfilled, you discover it within, but it's not from. It's from God. And when you allow that desire to emerge and come to expression, that's where you'll be happy. And so I used to, it was kind of a joke about uh, the people that I would would date because my my guys that I was was living with at the time, I'd say, yeah, I think she likes sports, you know, (laughs) trying to sense. uh, She's about five, six, I think. And uh, I, I was, what was I trying to do? I was trying to name the one God had planted in my heart. And so for me, dating was so quick. It wasn't just casual. It was for the sake of date to mate. Date in order to discern, is this the one God is calling me to be with? So for me, dating lasted just, it was just a few dates and it was like, you're not the one. Let's not even bother, right? And then I met Carrie. (laughs) Some people over here know Carrie really well and they're laughing. And here's where the stories diverge. (laughs) So meeting Carrie, on our first date, first time we were going out, we were going to see a friend of hers that went to, they went to school together and they were now in the same town. And, um, and, uh, and so I was going out with her and to see, to have dinner with her, uh, her friend. And she got out of the car and she ran upstairs to go see her friend she hadn't seen. And something leapt up inside of me. It leapt up and it said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with her. I was just like, wow. I mean, that had only happened about seven other times. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Oh, come on. All right, who saw that coming? Come on. No, uh, that had never happened before. That had never happened. It was the sense of saying, 
you know, I'm not going to pull the line, you complete me. Okay, I'm not going to say that. I didn't say that. Uh, but there was a way in which I was created for Kerry and Kerry for me. And that somehow our coming together would be this God-designed, God-authored gift by which we would perfect each other, help each other to become saints, and through the fruit of that self-giving love, bear fruit, if God willed, and the gift of children. I give you this whole background because it helps to shine a light on the first topic, sex in marriage. Okay? Hilaritas. <laughs> How does the Catholic Church see, see sex? Uh, that's really important. How does the church see sex? Remember, how you see something shapes how you relate to it, shapes how you behave. When we think about the church's teaching on sex, what do we first and maybe only and last think about? How to behave. And I say to you, you're not going to get the behaviors. You're not going to get them, and they're not going to make sense to you if you try to figure out the behaviors without understanding the attitudes, the way to relate to it. And you're not going to understand the attitudes unless you understand the awareness, how to see it. Got it? Yes. Okay. Woo. So how, does, how is sex understood? Well, through the concept, the marital act. Wow. The marital act explains so much right there. What is sex? The marital act. What does that help us understand? The, the, the concept, the context, the meaning. It, this is the act that is proper for those who are married, for husbands and wives in marriage. That's the meaning of it. That's it. Oh, I get it. If it's the marital act, it's an act proper for those who are married. Really clears away a lot of other questions if you understand how the church sees it. But even more than that, it gets even raised to a higher level now. Sacraments require what's called form and matter. Form and matter. That's uh, the way the church uses its sacramental theology. In other words, for there to be baptism, there requires a certain form of the ritual. In other words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are the words that need to be said for there to be a baptism. And what else? What's the matter? Water. You can't use ginger ale. right? I'm saying that as kind of joking, but you get it. You need a certain form and a certain matter. Okay, we go through all the sacraments, bread and wine for there to be Eucharist, right? What about marriage? That which makes marriage marriage is a certain form and matter. The form is what's called radum. And the matter is consumatum. Radum et consumatum. Radum is the vow. Remember we put that great emphasis on the vow? I give myself to you. I, Tom, take you, carry. That is one of the hinge points in making a sacrament a sacrament, is the vow. And we've already talked about how fundamentally important that is because the vowing that Carrie and I would do are reliant upon a deeper vowing, the vowing Christ makes to us, right? You remember that. So you can see how critical it is to get the vow right to get the radum right, and it's for life. It's a giving of oneself for life. Well, now let's talk about the consumatum, consummation, the marital act. This isn't just something that is legally 
by the church and morally acceptable because you're married. No. This is at the essence of that relationship being a sacrament. Remember what a sacrament is? It's the place where Jesus Christ has promised to meet you and to communicate his very life to you. Are you getting what I'm saying? That marital act, it's holy. It's from God. God promises to meet you there. And not just meet you, but he wants to give his very life to you there. This deserves to be revered. The church doesn't hate sex. The church reveres it because it's a holy thing. You should meet God and the very pouring out of God's life to you in the marital act. That's how the church sees it. That's why the church puts such great walls around it because it's so holy. Now, This holy deed is also the most intimate and profound way that you will ever express that which is at the heart of marriage, which is giving yourself as a gift. You think you give yourself as a gift by going out and working for your spouse and your family, cleaning the house, caring the house, raising the kids, caring for... Yeah, those are all ways that you're giving yourself to each other and for the family. But when you move towards the marital act, you are moving towards that peak, that summit, that high point of the intimate exchange of the disclosing and the giving of oneself to the other. The opening of oneself and the giving and receiving of the one to the other. That is what the church sees in the marital act. And as such... It must be guarded by what John Paul II called the personalistic norm. There's a kind of norm. There's a, there's a, a regulation that should be at work in this giving and this receiving. The personalistic norm said, says that you act in such a way that the other is treated as an end and not as a means. Let me say that again. The marital act needs to be guarded by the personalistic norm which says that the human being is a kind of being, the only proper way to relate to them is love, is actually seeing them as this gift. You see them as this gift, this unique gift, this unique gift, this precious, irreplaceable, never-to-be-seen-again person. That's who she is. That's who he is. I must relate to them as such and never use them as a means to an end. Use them as a means to an end in the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife? That would never happen. Okay. <laughs> Come on, it's like, am I, am I supposed to laugh? If I laugh too quickly or too loud or first, you know, what's going to happen, right? Now, let's, let's kind of dig into this a little bit, just a little bit, and then we'll leave it alone. Okay, don't worry. All right. You can start holding your wife's hand again. Come on. Lust. What's, don't laugh yet. Come on now. Uh, lust, right? One of the seven deadly sins, right? There's six others, and, and I know they hit all of us, right? Um, but it's so funny. I used to speak at men's conferences and women's conferences, right? And I'd say, okay, in the count of three among the seven deadly sins, you know what the seven deadly sins are, right? Envy, 
and jealousy and pride and anger and sloth and lust and what else? Gluttony. Thank you. Okay. So I've tried to raise up the sort of the glory of the holiness of this act and how it's a place where God intends to meet us. And it's this act of self-giving. Well, how does that shine a light on the church's teaching on birth control? Notice I didn't say contraception. The church's language is the regulation of births. The regulation of births, not contraception. Why? Contraception, by definition, is saying that you're attempting to prevent conception. And the church is saying that this way of approaching the marital act is doing something that is, guess what? Speaking the wrong language. I gave you a long quote here from Pope John Paul II, and it's worth reading and reflecting upon. I've actually got pages of quotes from different popes about this. But if you take a look at the way that contraception is discussed, it's discussed in the light of the gift message, this gift, mutual self-giving that is intended to be given. If you just jumped into the second part, uh, the second uh, paragraph here under number 11, it's in bold. The total physical self-giving would be a lie. Remember, to give oneself is to pledge one's troth, to give the very essence, the truth of oneself. But to contracept is, in fact, to expose the sign of self-giving. It would be a lie. If it were not the sign and fruit of a total personal self-giving in which the whole person, including the temporal dimension, is present, if the person were to withhold something or reserve the possibility of deciding otherwise in the future, by this very fact, he or she would not be given totally. And the Pope is going to go on. Here's what he's going to say. Who's the author of your marriage? God. If you contracept, what you're doing is saying, God, you're the author of our marriage the author of our family, but when it comes to the marital act, we're taking the pen. I want to be the author. I want to decide under what conditions fruitfulness will occur. The church doesn't say you shouldn't be wise and prudent about regulating births, but there are ways of doing that that won't cut off the possibility of life coming forth from a loving act, the marital act. It's called NFP. Anybody know what NFP is? The no fun plan. (laughs) Who saw that one coming? Come on now. Natural family planning. Natural family planning is a way of paying attention to what's happening in the woman's body and charting it out so that you'll recognize when the wife is fertile and the periods when she's not fertile. Now, some of you might say, but wait a minute. People can use this as a means of contracepting. And I say to you, it's a method. Methods are morally neutral. Depends on how you're using it. Even when a couple who uses natural family planning during times that are, by the chart, infertile, they're still saying that they're open to the possibility that life could come. Okay? So natural family planning, if you haven't discovered it, please take a look at it. It does many things for a marriage. Let me just say, Carrie and I have never really struggled with contraception. (laughs) That was a joke. Okay, we got a kiss. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, there's another path, though, and I'll share it with you if you're really interested, uh, that 
doesn't even involve natural family planning. It's called being a providentialist. Being a providentialist says, we're not going to do all of the charting. We're going to love each other and trust that God will provide. I don't even know if you've ever heard of that. But it's, it's saying that, you know, the method, if you want to use that, it's a beautiful thing to help you have a sense of being a co-author. Did you just hear that? God gives you the privilege of being a co-author in the marital act that's open to life. It's the highest dignity God gives you. Is you get to share as a co-author in creation. Wow. And our time sees it as a threat. A threat to the fun. So there are many goods that come from honoring what the church has to teach about this matter. Because what the church teaches about this matter is not trying to take away your fun or tell you what to do in the bedroom, but rather is attempting to say, do you really want to live out the author of marriage's vision for your married life? Here's how it works itself out. Here's how it breaks itself down into that very highest expression of love in your married lives. The sadness is this. We live in a time in our society where there's a lot of hand-wringing among priests about even bringing this teaching out into the open. And for me, that is a great sadness. Because Catholics who get married and who never hear about the church's teaching on marriage or on the marital act and how there is a way of regulating births that doesn't involve contraception are being robbed. They're being robbed not only of a life-giving way to live their married love, but they're being robbed of all the other goods that will come from that way of loving each other in marriage that may be, maybe, not of necessity, but may very well be absent or reduced in marriages that are contracepting as a regular practice. And so I propose to you, the church has a richness in her teaching in this matter. And we're being robbed if we're not trying to understand it and even more importantly, live it. That's the last thing I want to say about that is that this is one of those areas where you won't get it until you're living it. Understanding follows practice. Understanding follows obedience. Let me obey the teaching and eventually down the road, I'll understand it with a clarity that I never would have got had I tried to understand it before I lived it. A lot of the church's teaching is like that. First, obey it. Understanding follows.